This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This is the Scandal of Reading podcast. Join Jessica Hooten Wilson, author of The Scandal of Holiness, and her co hosts, Claude Acho, author of Reading Black Books, and Austin Cardi, author of The Pastor's Bookshelf, for inspiring conversations about why Christians should be reading great literature. In each episode, the hosts will also be dialoguing with writers about books they love and why these books matter for the life of the believer. Thank you all for being here again on The Scandal of Reading. I am delighted to get to talk to Claude and Austin again this morning about things that are going on in the world of books and the church. Right now, especially, there is a controversy about endorsements, and all of us had to do this for our books. You write something, you want other people to read it, therefore you have to write all your friends or all those who are teachers in the public space and ask them, please read my book. If you enjoy it, let others know what you think about it so that more people read it. And so this is just kind of part of the pro- like publishing process. To me, it's one of the most difficult parts because I hate having to ask favors of friends. It feels like my friendships suddenly become transactional, which I can't stand. And I would rather not have to have asks all the time, but it is the world that we're in. And this recent problem where people were not actually even reading the books all the way before they endorsed a Christian book. And therefore, the theology was found to be heretical. I'm not going to go into too much detail. Has Caitlin Beatty pointing fingers at the publishing industry and saying the world of Christian publishing has problems that maybe pastors don't need to be writing books, y'all, or maybe we need to change the system of having platforms before you publish or, you know, all these questions that are kind of circling around in the social media world and affecting the industry. So I'm curious about what you guys think and whether you've been following this conversation. I've been following it peripherally and as much as I don't really know a whole lot about the specific book and the uh, issues surrounding it, uh, you can't be immune from it if you are on Twitter. Uh, And I suppose that's related to your question because I was off of Twitter for over a decade and uh, really don't like social media at all. In fact, I could spend hours with Jeremiah against it, but yet I'm on there. Um, And that's solely because once my book was coming out, I'd been told by the publicist that I had to have it. Uh, I have, I think, like two followers. So if y'all want to follow me, uh, bring me up to double digits. That would be (laughs) awesome. Uh, But beware, I tweet like once a month. Um, But but so anyway, all that to say, uh, yeah, I'm aware of what's going on. And I think it's a huge problem. I haven't read the article uh, that uh, Caitlin Beatty wrote, but I've also seen people sharing it. Uh, so that's long prefatory remarks for saying I only really know a slight bit of what I'm talking about. But that being said, I do know that I think it's a real problem in general uh, and for Christian uh, ministry and Christian communication in particular uh, for folks to put their name on an endorsement of something that they haven't fully read and considered and reflected upon. And I sure hope that the folks who read mine and endorsed mine had read it. I think also, and that's probably one of the things that's lost in this conversation is I don't want somebody to give an endorsement to my book, even if it's glowing, if they haven't really read it. Uh, 
But um, I know that I wouldn't put my name on a book that um, that I hadn't read all of and didn't feel like I could stand behind either the message or the person. And in that endorsement, be able to kind of point out that while I might disagree on some things, I can recommend and commend the, the integrity and the heart of, of, of the person. This is also easier for me to say. I don't get a whole lot of requests for endorsements. I bet y'all get 10 times more than I do, and I'm not on the level of the people we're talking about. Um. But all of that being said, it, it is something that we need to take very seriously. And there's an enormous problem within Christianity in general, but within evangelicalism in particular with the cult of celebrity. And without meaning to, I think we do perpetuate that um, by getting involved in a game where we're, we're all uncritically trying to help build one another's platforms. There is a spirit of generosity that I think takes place in that. I mean, y'all have both done that for me. I mean, uh, my being on this podcast is a gift that y'all have done to kind of bring me in and give me some more platform visibility. So that's that's generosity of spirit. That's charitability. Um, but I do think that there's a need to be kind of um, reflective and critical about how we're doing that so that we don't just get involved in kind of an institutional mechanism where we're all just trying to promote one another for one another's sake uh, to ultimately continue to elevate ourselves. So there's my two cents. I think that's, yeah, I think that's helpful. It's important. I think it's the sort of um, kind of blind endorsement, kind of like, hey, I know what you stand for. You did this for me. I do this for you. And and um, that that dynamic obviously is, is really troublesome. Uh, I think as well, it's difficult to imagine how you can avoid being sort of like a trusted voice and, you know, some people appreciating your work without devolving into like this brand, you know, um, the sort of like, mm-hmm. oh, OK, that, you know, this person endorsed this. So so this is what this means. So I can kind of take this and run with this, you know, and uh, oh, you know, I've got this book. If I could get this person to endorse, they kind of carry with them this audience. It's hard to disentangle that from sort of the fruit of like faithful work in the pu- in public versus sort of like, um the troubles of celebrity, you know, and I think a lot of it comes down to, I guess, working within the system that we're in, a lot of it comes down to, I guess, our own sort of motivations and character and the way we operate individually and where we have to have lines where we say, no, you know, that's, that's, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, and where we, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, have to be discerning in that sense. Um, I think that, I think that's sort of was troubling about this most recent incident where, um, uh, where it sort of pulled back the veil maybe for people outside of the industry to sort of recognize like, oh, Mm -hmm. okay, I kind of trusted these voices. And now I'm finding out, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe that was misplaced in in a sense. So, so I want, I wonder, I I wonder about that. I'd I'd like to read, I need to read Caitlin's book. Um, I think that would be really helpful for me. And and I think on the question of pastors publishing books, um, I think it's also the question of like, why, like, why, why is, why are you just with anything, you know, it's not as simple as not always simple as do it or don't do it. It's sort of, who are you? Why, why are you doing this? I mean, I think there very much is something about certain types of books that get published by pastors. And I think you can really, to me, I think you can really clearly see like, this is a grab to capitalize on sort of Mm -hmm. like a brand, a kind of entity. And you could see by the type of, sometimes I think by the publishers, the way they approach it. Um, I, I hope that doesn't sound judgmental, but I, I, I don't know. I think some of that seems really apparent. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I, I you know, I, I think that that is troubling. Um, I, I think a lot of the pastors that, that I know that have written are sort of like, I, I love doing this and I want to do this, but they're also kind of like, seem pretty aware that, okay, um, 
I'm doing this, but I, I got to figure out how I'm doing this in a way that's that's really not going to pull me away from like what I'm doing locally, you know, mm-hmm. but maybe that's just the small circles mm-hmm. that I'm in. So um, I, I do think it is, it, it's something that deserves more conversation and attention, which obviously is sort of sparked by this recent incident. Yeah. So Caitlin's piece, she says, unless you're Eugene Peterson, don't write books. Yeah. <laughs> because, and and her argument was, you know, Eugene Peterson poured into his church plant for 29 years before he started the publishing game. And then all the wisdom he had gained from years and years of pastoring well, he then writes these books and puts them out there. But he's in a place in his life where he can do that, where he's writing from a, a stance of wisdom. And I think too often, maybe the, the pressures to publish, and I don't know because I don't know the pastoral world. I know in the academic world, there's a pressure to publish regularly. And that's not necessarily why I do it. I, you know, I've been accused, someone um, accused me of trying to be a sexy academic, which mm. I think is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> because what, what, what benefit would that be to turn your ideas into something that's just appealing mm. for the moment? And that is not what I'm trying to do when I am going from the academic university press books to the trade books. What I was doing is thinking, why is all of this wisdom all of this teaching, all the stuff I've learned from the people I respect and admire, why is it being sure. kept in the college yeah. classroom? These are things that would benefit the church. So my motivation is there. I think if my motivation, if I ever feel the need to be only relevant or temporary or platform building, I would hope that everyone in my life that I have close relationships with would say, yeah. stop publishing, You know, stop writing. You're kind of spinning your wheels and spitting stuff out there that, that doesn't need to be in the conversation. And I would hope it would be the yeah. same. For yeah. Pastors. I, I mean, I think some of it comes down to what is a what is a successful model in your vocation? So I think there is a model within, and I think maybe this is where Caitlin's really, uh, maybe from what I, from what I can deduce really extremely kind of like on point and helpful. There's this idea of a successful pastor I means a big church book deals, you know, platform, all these sort of things. So then because of that, there is, um, there is an appeal and there is a sense of sort of like, oh, this is, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? You know, I'm supposed to kind of, I, I need to have video clips of my sermons, you know? I mean, I, I, I personally like, I think right. for me, I'm like, I'll, if I ever put video clips of my sermons online, that feels, that feels really strange. But that again is, I think there's a personal mm-hmm. sort of discernment for some people they can, you know, I've had others tell me like, no, but this is good and it'll help and it'll reach people. But it's also feels like, well, maybe I'm just supposed to reach the people that I'm, that I'm around, you know, and in terms of sort of like stuff that happens in my church locally. But I think there is this sort of standard definition of success in our vocations, which then challenges us to really discern and filter. Is that really success? Is it really success to, mm-hmm. um, be a platform pastor that has a bunch of book deals, you know, um, or is that something that actually comes maybe later from the fruit of a long time of ministry, if ever, and for many, not at all. And you need not be concerned with it. You know, what does it mean to be um, an academic who is first a Christian and wants to serve the church? You know, Um, like, what is it? So, so I think there, there's a lot of hard work for us to do to sort of interrogate maybe models of success in, in each of our vocations in relation to, you know, our sort of celebrified culture where we feel like we have to share everything we do. And if we don't share it, and we don't yeah. like depict the process and the afterwards and how much people liked it. It feels like it never happened or it feels invalid, you know? Oh, so and good. I think that's a really big, that's a really big good challenge good. for us, you know? Um, and I, I think the, the other side of this is it can 
turn into a lot of second guessing for people who are genuinely wanting to share their work and to serve others, you know, so then you, then you get the other, the inverse of the problem, which is like, oh, okay, I, I want to, I need to write these things that are helpful, but now am I, am I just caught up in this game? So I think it's really tricky. And I think we need a lot of good, uh, a lot of good thought and conversation to help us figure out what we're to do. Yeah. I think that's also well put Claude. Yeah. And uh, I can endorse uh, to use the word that we're using the idea of, pastors waiting a long time, if ever, to write books and certainly not to feel the, the the need to write a book and then turn out another book and another book, which that is a pressure that that can begin to build. And one can find him or herself in a place that, OK, well, I've written one book and got some notoriety for that and had good feedback and there's a publisher interested. So now I need to write another book and then write another book. And there's a big difference between writing a book because there's something that you really have to say and you really feel drawn to say it. Uh, and that while it would be wonderful for more and more people to have access to it, that's not really your main goal. It's just about having the thing said. There's a difference between that and suddenly having mm-hmm. this sense of um, vocational pressure that you have to keep putting out more books uh, to be able to increase visibility, like Claude was saying. And there are institutional pressures that that take place in that, depending on what where you are in, in, in kind of the... Uh, grander church milieu. If if you're in big box evangelicalism, then that pressure's on you hard. You know, um, I can say a lot of these things very easily because mm-hmm. I'm in a little local church ministry, part of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. It's not normal for our pastors to feel like we need to be writing books. Um, so there's no there, there's there's no sense of I'm not living up to my vocation if I don't write another book. Whereas right down mm-hmm. the street, you know, a good friend of mine, pastor of you know one of the 10 biggest mega churches in the country, there's pressure on him to write a book and write another book and write another book. And um, folks attach a level of success and credibility to that. And um, so that's, that's something that's institutionally pressing down in a way that folks like myself just don't feel. Uh, so it's, it's easier for me to say that because my, my, my worthiness as a pastor is not being, uh, being judged on that. Um, but, all of that being equal, I do think that it's um, it's it's potentially detrimental to uh, uh, the pastoral vocation to feel like you really just need to be pumping something out for visibility, and certainly to then feel like you need to to be able to stay current and in the game to be endorsing other folks so that you can keep building your level. And I do want to say one other thing before we kind of get off of this, which is that, and we talked about this in one of the earlier podcasts. I've been in the writing world now for over two decades, which is hard to believe. Uh, when you go Google my name and see how little I have to show for it, then you know, then it leaves you really scratching your head. But I've had, I had a New York reputable literary agent as far back as uh, early 2003. So just shy of, well, no, yeah, so 20 years now. Um, and um, things have changed so dramatically. And in, in those in those first years um, leading up to what was, you know, my, my first up until um, the pastor's bookshelf, um, nationally published book, what an agent was looking for you to have for a proposal was so entirely different because there wasn't social media. Uh, even this, this this clamor for endorsements wasn't the same. The way that they quantified what was going to be a successful book, publishers would take a chance on uh, upcoming up, uh, or, or, or writers that didn't have a name but had a good uh, that that, had, that that were good writers or had a, had a good idea. 
Um, and then I was completely out for over a decade purposely, um, both because nobody was banging on my door for me to write another book. And also because I really had felt like, all right, well, I don't want to do this again until I have something to say. When it came time for uh, me to look at publishing the pastor's bookshelf, everything had changed. Um, there were publishers that, uh, that, that loved what I'd written and didn't, um, and, 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 uh, thought that there was merit to it, but I didn't have Twitter and, uh, I wasn't active in social media and my church, relatively speaking, is very small and who am I? And nobody cares that you were on survivor 15 years ago. And I'm like, you're the only one that knew I was on survivor. You went and Googled me. That's how you knew it. It's not even in the proposal. So, um, so it just it underscores how things have changed and in, in, in such an unhealthy way because it's so much more now about platform than it is about what's being said and who's saying it. So anyway, that's my final thought on that. Yeah, well, I'm going to wrap up with a Beth Moore quote because I think she's one of those models in the industry that somehow has kept her soul in the midst of popularity and fame. And she said, there's a difference between being adored and being loved. And I think the publishing industry makes you feel like there is more power in being adored. And as long as we keep remembering that it's not the adoration, she says, those who would adhor you can jump to abhor you just as quickly. And so if we, if we put too much emphasis on that, we're going to miss what really matters, which is of course, being Amen. loved, right. And loving others. So thank you, Beth, for that. We're going to share your wisdom. And if you're enjoying these conversations and you want more of them, please do share the podcast. Do share them with other people. If this is a benefit, if this is a fruit, we do want to make sure that people are getting blessed by that and are joining the conversations with us and are hopefully joining our community, writing us and meeting us wherever we end up speaking in your, in your midst. Uh, that would be great. For right now, stay tuned for another great interview. This podcast is sponsored by Brazos Press. Brazos Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. A Brazos Press book that I recommend is my latest, Reading for the Love of God, How to Read as a Spiritual Practice. In this book, I show how to read as a spiritual practice in a way that encourages humility, increases charity toward others, frees minds and hearts from the trappings of contemporary idols, and gives direction toward contemplation. Get 30% off and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith, and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Welcome to another episode of The Scandal of Reading. I am still having a lot of fun having these conversations, so I'm just going to keep having them. Today, I have asked my friend, Alan Noble, to join me because, well, even though he's not an Elliot biographer or expert on Elliot, no. I know that he knows probably more than I do on T.S. Elliot and enjoys him just as much as I do. So, 
Thank you for coming on, Alan. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so I'm Alan Noble, Associate Professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University and author of a, a couple of books. I have one coming out in April called On Getting Out of Bed that that mostly has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. And then <laughs> mostly, I do, although I do quote Elliot, I think I quote four quartets too. Yeah, I mm-hmm. do. Because that's what he does to you. He just gets in your head. And uh, author of um, some other books. What are the other books called? Disruptive Witness. There you go. Thank you. And You Are Not Your Own. Um, that makes it sound like I have so many books I can't remember them, but it's just I have bad memory. <laughs> there's, there's not that many books. Well, and your your book, You Are Not Your Own, has become such a mantra for me. I remember the first time you were in the middle of writing it and you gave that talk at John Brown University. Oh, yeah. On the Yeah. And I had I had already read your disruptive witness by that point, which was really good. And actually, I give it to a lot of people who are struggling with uh, Charles Taylor's secular age. Yeah. Because I feel like yours is like a primer for why secular age is worth reading. Yeah. Um, But then you are not your own. You gave that talk. And I was like, that is I mean, I know it's a, a biblical phrase, but just having it that concise to constantly repeat to people is so important because everyone acts like the the mantra of the day is you are your own you are your you know do you do you and so i love your your book title going against that and i think well and i think this is a good segue into elliot because elliot right is the the 20th century poet who was constantly looking back to his tradition right tradition and yeah. the individual talent is one of his writings Yep. And so talk, I think you are a good person to talk about this. And you even started your book. You did quote Little Gidding. Can you, can you talk about, let me, let me draw the quote and then you can talk about why yeah. maybe you started this way and, and how did you get into Elliot and why did he have such a, a place lodged in your memory? So in You Are Not Your Own, you wrote, I offer the following book in the spirit of these lines from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. And this is from Elliot. And what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate. But there is no competition. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. So maybe talk about your book, I guess, in that context or just talk about why Elliot really made a lasting impact on you in that way. So, so those lines, at this point, Eliot was, if not the great poet of the English language mid-century, um, he was at least among the top two or three. And for him to be saying this, to, for him to describe the process of writing poetry, because that's the context of this, and, and be saying that you know, for us, there's only the trying, the rest is not our business. And to, to discuss this idea of, you know, no matter what we do, other people have already done it once, twice, or many times, and in ways that we can't even hope to emulate. Um, if he struggles with writing in that way, then that was comforting to me. But the other thing that was this idea of rediscovering um, what has already been said as a valuable exercise. When I was writing You Are Not Your Own, I'm doing all this research and I'm realizing this book has already been written. 
by other people mm-hmm. in the past. There's nothing new. And so I'm sitting here like, why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through this? And Elliot gave me an answer is that some, some things just need to be said over and over again. And so my task is to do that work. And um, so I find that incredibly, incredibly helpful. Oh, that's, that's so good. You know, I just wrote reading for the love of God. And as I'm writing it, I went and visited Baylor and I went and saw Dr. David Lyle Jeffrey. Yeah. And he's like, Hey, tell me about your new book. And I'm like, well, <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> the version of everything you ever taught me. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go? <laughs> he's like, no, you're selling yourself short. And, uh. um, it, but, but he, but it was really good because he, He actually, I think, told the truth the same way Elliot did is that's valuable. It's valuable to re-say the things that are true. You know, he wrote for his time and his place. And now I'm writing for my time and my place. And that's what Elliot is doing in this poetry. He's And he's writing the way that he even writes the four quartets has not been done for that time and place in that way before. Right. You know, I mean, he still is. Yeah, go ahead. Again and again. Right. And he gives tribute to the past in the ways that he says them, right? He doesn't try to hide it or pretend to be original. Yeah. I mean, he loves, this is part of who Eliot is. He loves to be pulling from, you know, he's a classicist in literature, right? Mm -hmm. He loves pulling Mm -hmm. from other works and connecting to it. And even the the compound ghost he meets in Little Gidding is represent it like literally embodies this idea this compound ghost who's yates and probably keats and um who knows who else it's uh one of the pound and dante and certainly dante yeah 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 Yeah. maybe maybe julian if i can throw her into the compound yeah yeah of norwich oh that julian yes (laughs) that julian (laughs) yes yes yeah yeah i mean because he quotes her um at the end so yeah yeah she's in there okay so before jumping to little getting in the very end of this could you just set yeah. up okay so who is Elliot at this point in his life writing this poem you know it's 1941 kind of take us back in time and what is the four quartets can you just explain the poem itself so he begins with um murder in the cathedral is where this mm-hmm. begins actually at this point he's um, already established as this great poet, but he's mostly writing plays. And he mm-hmm. writes some lines for uh, Murder in the Cathedral, which don't make it into the to the play because he's told oh. that they don't actually um, work on stage, but he really likes them. He doesn't want to get rid of them, right? So for writers, yeah. save all your scraps because you yeah, never right? know what what might be... <laughs> your best work. Uh, and so, <laughs> so, so he begins with those and, and, and that's the first, I don't know if it's just the first stanza. I can't remember, but it's, it's the beginning of the, uh, of the poem, Bert Norton, which is the first of the poems. Um, and so he writes it. It's a very difficult process for him. Uh, he doesn't intend at the beginning to write four of these. It's just one uh, poem initially. Um, but then after it comes out and it does well, he, he decides actually there's, there are more of these. 
um, mm. that I'm going to write. And he's going to uh, flesh this out. Um, and it, it starts actually, the first one is, uh, he begins work on it. I want to say in 35 it's so it's before the war begins. Okay. But it's written, most of it's written during, during the world, uh, the second world war. Um, and, uh, part of what we'll see is his experience as an air warden. Um, that comes into play, especially little getting. Um, so it's, it's a poem of the second world war. Um, but it's a poem of, someone who's converted to Anglicanism and has hope now, but he's trying to figure out what it means to live in, uh, uh, in what is still a wasteland um, mm. in many ways. Yeah. And I, so I knew the part of where he had written Burnt Norton previously and didn't intend the other pieces. Did he write the, the next three parts of the quartets though, with all three kind of planned out, in his mind where he was going with this? I don't know. I'm not okay. sure how planned out it was. Uh, yeah. But that he wanted to have four, I think by the time uh, he gets to East Coker, I think he has four envisioned, but I don't know that he, I mean, it, it's difficult to say because when you look back on it and scholars have done, so mm -hmm. they, they see all these patterns, they see all these things connecting right. it. So there are these, for example, there are four elements that you can identify: earth in burnt, uh, excuse me, air in burnt Norton, earth in mm -hmm. East Coker, water in the Dry Salvages, and fire in Little mm -hmm. Gidding. And then you've got four seasons, and you've got these patterns, uh, other patterns in there. But um, but I don't know how. I can't. I don't imagine him having like a, a board. Where he like, right, <laughs> that's what I would do. <laughs> that's what I would do too, right? <laughs> yeah, I would need my index cards for like, okay, what motifs yeah. am I doing? Like, how does this all line up? Color code yeah. them. Yeah, well, and it's seen. I mean, it's so inspired to imagine that he was able to do this because even like the, you know, something like the Divine Comedy, right? It, and that, of course, is a huge influence on this poem. You know, he, he had Dante has the benefit of having each canto like on its own page, and he can kind of compare like Canto 19 of Inferno yeah. with Purgatorio with Paradiso. So it just seems to me like after you've written Burt Norton, it would set up the skeleton of making sure that the other three pieces fit. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And so I just didn't know if he did that because I know he wrote it over a few years. I didn't realize he even started it before the war, which makes sense. I'm not an Elliot scholar, so. Yeah. But no, that does make sense. Yeah. <laughs> but I have heard a lot of people talk about how the four poems, they end up telling a narrative altogether. Have you, have you heard this idea that the whole, like all four of them end up, they, okay, who, I don't even remember yeah. the guy's name who does this, yep. but he talks about like, Bert Norton is entering our first world. Yeah. East Coker is adopting the old world. Okay. Dry Salvages is rediscovering the new world. And little getting is choosing between worlds. That's I've not I've heard. heard that before. That's interesting. There's there's definitely there's a sense in which um, Bert Norton is inviting you into the first world. I I, I think that mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. And by the time we get to little getting, 
you know, at the very end, which we'll get to later, because it's like, it's amazing. But um, mm-hmm. when we cease from our ex- exploration, there, there, so there is a narrative arc there. But knowing that he didn't intend, you know, he didn't plan this narrative arc, kind of, um, I think it actually does, it, it makes more sense to me, because I'm, it's not a very tight arc, if there's one there. But um, mm. but what you just summarized makes sense. I can I can see that reading. This is the thing with Elliot is that there's just there's a lot going on, and there are still I've what you asked me earlier what um, what drew me to Elliot or why I was interested in him, yeah. and um, or I imagine that you asked me that. Maybe you didn't. No, I asked. I'll tell you anyway. <laughs> you did. Okay. Well, I didn't yeah. answer. So I started um, listening to this poem. On YouTube, you can find Elliot reading it, and you can find Alec Guinness reading it, and um, and I would start Jeremy Irons. I, Jeremy Irons, not a fan of his reading. I don't know why. No, because there's really music. Okay. I think there's music in the background or something, and it's just like oh, I don't. I don't need mood. Uh, the poem is the mood. I don't need any mood. Anyway, um, so I just started listening to this throughout my day about uh, about two years ago i would be doing dishes and i'm listening to it i'm walking to school and i'm listening to it and i've probably listened to it i don't know 100 200 times um i should have it all memorized i absolutely don't um but it it washed over me and um there are still lots of passages, even though I've read it so many times, where I just, I don't know what's going on. Famously, one of them is um, the unimaginable zero summer. So there are these phrases like that. I have no idea. No idea what that means. Uh, Helen, Helen Gardner, um, this well-known, really famous Elliot scholar who knew Elliot, um, says something like in one of her books, she says, that uh, when she talks on Elliot, people always ask her what that means, and she's got no idea. <laughs> she's like, "Don't ask me what the unimaginable zero summer yeah. means. What is a zero summer?" Um, but um, so there's this richness to it that you just keep coming back to. And there's still these pieces where I'm I'm not sure. Even when I teach it, I'm there are sections I get to it. I'm like, "Well, what do you guys think?" I'm not sure what's yeah. going on here. Yeah, and. You know, there, he has that line where he says, "We had the experience, but missed the meaning." Yeah. An approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form. So yeah. it seems like he's inviting us into the experience of the poem without trying to make everything meaningful. But especially for Christians, they're going to be very hesitant hearing that because they don't want to hear that this poem is going to be an experience that's meaningless. Yeah. And it's definitely right. not. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I find that that kept me listening to it is that there are these passages that I can cling to that do make sense to me, that made sense right away and mm-hmm. that I resonated with. And I was able to sort of just s- stick with those. Um, you know, so, so one of them, Burt Norton, uh, the third section is on he's descending into the london tube and Mm. he talks about people who are distracted from distraction by distraction which is just this fantastic line and so even the you know the first time i'm reading this i i don't know what's going on that's okay that's very common with poetry for me i'm not a great Mm. reader of poetry i've got to read it over and over and over and over to get it and but the first time i heard that i was like oh 
oh, that's great. That's a great line. That's when I look outside, when I look at myself sometimes, that's what it is. Distracted from distraction by distraction. Just this layers and layers of distraction. He goes on, Mm -hmm. filled with fancy and empty of meaning, tumid apathy with no concentration, men and bits of paper, whirled by the cold wind. Um, and then it ends this, well, not the whole section, but, but part of this ends with, uh, not here, not here in the darkness in this Twittering world. And I love Twitter. And so that, uh, <laughs> when I think about men and bits of paper and filled with fancy and empty of meaning, and then the Twittering world, it's like, it all fits together. It's perfect. So you should, so, you should write like an annotated version of <laughs> <laughs> connects to the 21st century yeah. yeah but it's it but it's you know as this depiction of the modern wasteland and so that section i think it's very reminiscent of of the wasteland um yeah. and so for elliot we're we're still living in the wasteland but but there's a way of of living in it uh righteously and that's, mm. I think, the heart of this poem is how how to live. Um, yes, which is, you know, what a topic. Oh, no kidding. Well, and it's 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 how to live meaningfully, like how to see the world meaningfully, and it feels like the poem itself is training us away from the distracted from distraction by distraction. Yeah, with the poem itself. Yeah, absolutely. Because you have to attend to it. You have mm-hmm. to attend to it to figure out what's going on. And this is one of the things great poetry does, is it forces you to concentrate. It forces you to slow down yeah. and pay attention and to peel apart. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say to people who have not read the four quartets, um, just, and this is the advice I give to my students, just listen mm-hmm. to it and let it wash over you and give it time. And what will happen is you start piecing things together. Yeah. Um, yeah. So starting just and starting just with Burt Norton, do you mind reading just the opening? Like what how would we read this? So let's imagine just like reading it out loud. Someone's reading for this mm. for the first time. What did they do? What what did they do? <laughs> yeah. So I mean real, realistically, when people yeah. so I, I mean I'm married to an engineer and I live in a small town. So yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not at Oxford. I'm not in somewhere where everyone is reading this poem and people know how to read poetry and it's part of their daily practice. So I can imagine not having any of that background, but they but people hear what we're saying that this poem yeah. matters, that it can actually maybe help you out of your distracted from distraction by distraction. And then you sit down and there's these abstracts time present and time past and both perhaps present and time, future and time, you know, what, how do we read that? How is it supposed to wash over us and sound to us? Yeah. All right. So this is what it says. As you said, time present and time past are both perhaps present and time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory, down the passage which we did not take, towards the door we never opened, into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind. 
But to what purpose disturbing the bowl or rose of bowl of rose leaves, disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. Yeah, so I, yeah, can you explain that for me? <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, I think it's unfortunate is, that it yeah. begins with Burt Norton, to be honest. I have a friend who says, you know, that it's that it's kind of unfortunate that because that opening is very uh yeah, if you're not a great reader of poetry, you're probably gonna be turned off by that because mm-hmm. it's dense. It's dense philosophical. Mm-hmm. Um, meditations on the nature of time. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and here he's, he's talking about um, the way time is not just, um, well, he says time present and time past are mm-hmm. both perhaps present in the future. So the, our current time and the time in the past uh, are in some sense contained in the future because the future is a result of those two. Mm-hmm. And uh, time future is contained in the past because the time mm-hmm. past is sort of the egg which the future hatches from. Um, but if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. And redeeming mm-hmm. time is going to be one of the themes of the poem. And the incarnation really is that key. Yes, um, the, the thing, yes. the still point that that redeems time. And so he goes on, what might have been is an abstraction remaining only a possibility, only in a world mm-hmm. of speculation. So, you know, we look back on what might have been, but it's it only exists as a possibility in a world of speculation. Mm-hmm. Um but then he invites us, we hear these, these footfalls echoing in the memory, and we're going down mm-hmm. this passage, which we did not take, uh, mm-hmm. into this rose garden, which is this Edenic space. Um, and it's a little bit, I think of this opening a little bit like Proof Rock, where, um, mm-hmm. where we're invited to follow along. Uh, he's mm-hmm. inviting us into this space. Um, yeah. I think I'm such a, so I have a mix here of being mom and professor when I read this, because the professor in me thinks of Augustine's confessions and these meditations on time. And then the mom in me thinks about every night before my kids go to bed, I I say, do you have a question? And it can be any question. It can be the most basic, like, so I'm, Hmm. you know, I'm, I'm pregnant right now. Like where do babies come from? Or it can be, uh, you know, the, the question that, you know, always shocks me is when my kids say things like, where am I going to be tomorrow? And what is life going to be like? Is it going to be the same as today? Or, you know, like, I mean, they, uh-huh. they actually reflect on yeah. what was life like when I wasn't here? And they actually reflect on these things. I think this is what Elliot is doing is it sounds very abstract and theological, but also this is a choose your own adventure novel too, mm. to think through like the paths you didn't take, the places you could have gone. What could tomorrow be that was different from today? How could your life look? Will it look the same? And if it looks the same, is it the same? Because it's not. It's different. But the day seems the same. The hours seem the same. The schedule is the same. And yet it's a different day. And so I think think it makes us ask almost childlike questions. Mm. And that in and of itself is moving us past the distracted by our own busyness. That, That moment of like, humble reflection 
you know, of not knowing is something that we just, we don't practice enough. And he, he makes us start that way. Yeah. And slow down. You know, it's right. My daughter, when she, my oldest, when she was probably three or four, we were driving somewhere and she says, nothing is going to be exactly as it is right now. That yeah. car will never be in that place. And like that tree won't be there in this exact, those leaves or whatever. Right. And it was, and I was just like, what is going on? You're so profound, but you're right. That's what kids do. She was mm-hmm. just meditating on the nature of, of, of time and time passing. Yeah. And I, so I think, and isn't, I mean, I may be wrong where, I don't remember where he gets the title Burnt Norton from, but isn't there a sense in which like he titles it from somewhere in his past? Like he's trying to take us back to childlikeness. So Burnt Norton is a a manor in England that was burnt down and it has this garden and that's um, East Coker is where his family is from and where he's buried. So, mm-hmm. um, that's the one that has a more direct connection to him in his past. His past. Yeah. Cause I thought there was something almost biographically, like he, he's definitely taking us there. Um, but even still to me, that's how it reads. It, it reads, it reads almost like a, all right, let's, let's stop from all our going underground or what Flannery O'Connor would say, our gray flannel suit life mm-hmm. that we're living. And instead, okay, let's go to Eden. Let's take a path we haven't taken. Yeah. Let's take a, even a, a path of thought. It doesn't have to be, you know, a, a Robert Frost moment of I took the path less traveled by and like quit your job and do something different. Like that's not where he's going. He's no. just saying instead of going through the motions without the meaning, what if you stopped like your daughter did and saw the world around you and recognized the meaning of where you are? And that's when you can have these moments of transcendence where the transcendent breaks in. So in the second movement, mm-hmm. um, you know, is it the second movement? Um, the second movement of Burt Norton, you mean? Yeah, yeah, let's see. No, it's the first movement. It's the first movement. When he looks down into the drained pool, uh, mm. he says, this is in this garden. It's a drained pool. And he says, dry pool, dry concrete, brown edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight, and the lotus rose quietly, quietly. The surface mm-hmm. glittered out of heart of light, and, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. Mm-hmm. So there's just this moment of transcendence, of attending to the natural world, and he sees something truly beautiful that seems that, that, that this moment of, of, of the transcendent breaking in. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, we only have these little glimpses in this life of these, of these kinds of moments. And there are several throughout, throughout the poem itself. Um, and, <laughs> but, and part of the reason I think we only have these moments is a bird comes and says, go for the leaves are full of children hidden, ex- hidden excitedly containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is another yeah, one of these lines. It's so great. Uh-huh. Well, and it reminds me of a Christian Wyman poem that I can't remember all the details, but he's like looking out a window and there's a beautiful falcon. Do you remember this Christian Wyman poem? Mm-hmm. poem? No. no. I'm going to have to go look it up now because I'll put it in the show yeah. notes so that it doesn't, okay. it does exist. Um, but that's what I was thinking <laughs> of is that there's this, this moment in which the bird calls you to stop and reflect rather than um, than just keep going throughout your day and and not think about 
the way that your your whole life fits within a, a bigger arc, uh, which I think is what Elliot's trying to do. So what are the other, a lot of people, and this is me, myself included, um, spend most of their time in Burton Norton and Little Gidding, right? So what are the highlights for East Coker and the dry salvages? And on this, while you're like thinking of the passages to draw our attention to, um, in the four quartets by the Trinity Forum, they actually have where they just highlight passages. So it's okay. not the whole thing. If people are overwhelmed, it has an introduction by Mako Fujimura, and then it just has, oh, wow. here's a small intro to um, to the poet itself. It has discussion questions. You can do this with your church group. And That's and they cool. put stuff out like this, like every month. So here's a little Julian of Norwich. Here's a little Bonhoeffer. Here's a little Dorothy Day, just to kind of keep you in the tradition and know what's going on in the tradition. So Yeah, that's great. I, um, you know, East Coker is my favorite. I, oh, really? I, that's East that's Coker the one I usually... Is, the one so why you is usually your skip? Is that what yeah, you said? So, well, okay. So same with like, so people always talk about limited time in a classroom. And so I do all four and I've done all four many times. So it's not always, okay. but depending on which seminar I'm teaching, sometimes I only have time for one or two in a class period because a class period is an hour and a half. So maybe I get oh, yeah. to one on a Tuesday and one on a Thursday and I can't get all the way through dry salvages or East Coker. So that's, that's yeah. usually where I spend the bulk of my time is beginning and the end. Um, so tell me why we should pause on these two more. Yeah. So I think dry salvages is the weaker of them, of the okay. four personally. And Burt Norton is great, but it's, it's dense. It's difficult to get through. Um, East Coker, I think, just has these these great passages. Um, so, for example, in the third movement, um, this is where he talks about waiting without hope. Um, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Mm. And I use uh, wait without love, for love would be love with the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without mm. thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. Dancing is mm. low determined this, in this work, in this poem. Um, so as he's thinking through ways of being in the world, he has this um, uh, kind of a way of resignation, of uh, or not resignation, a way of denial. And mm -hmm. uh, he's working with St. John of the Cross. Right. And... Um, part of what he wants to emphasize is, uh, I think, is with this idea of waiting without hope is that, well, as he says, hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I use this in You Are Not Your Own uh, as, a, as a way of exploring the contemporary political world. We tend right. to, when we hope, we hope for the wrong things. We think that we hope for the right things. And and I pull, uh, you know, I, I use as an example, Jonah, uh, as somebody who hoped for the damnation of Nineveh. And oh, so he, good. Yeah. And he imagined that he was hoping for the right things. But there's a sense in which in order to follow God, we actually have to wait without hope. And he's not saying hopelessness. What he's saying is don't have this very definite vision of what you think the future needs to be like. You have to be patient and, and trust in God. Um, so I, I love 
I love that passage. Uh, the fourth movement is um, the wounded surgeon section, yeah, which is so good as a uh, just lyrically. The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part beneath the bleeding hands. We feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Um, uh, our only health is the disease. If we obey mm-hmm. the dying nurse whose constant care is not to please, but to remind of ours and Adam's curse and that to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. So here yeah. he's got this, uh, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about, about sin in the gospel, God as this healer. Um, and you know, it ends, uh, uh, um, if to be warm, warmed, then I must freeze and quake in frigid purgatorial fire. So he's back to Dante, of which the flame is roses and the smoke is briars. The dripping blood are only drink, the bloody flesh are only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. And again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. So that's just beautiful and magnificent. And um, it gets stuck in your head, too, yeah. in a good way. Um, so I love I love I love that. Uh, the next section, the fifth section, is um, this is this is where he's in, he says. So here I am in the middle way. So we're back to to Dante, midway through my life's journey, uh, mm-hmm. and he's talking about these twenty years uh, between the two wars, and this is that section actually where we started with. Um, where he where he talks about the rest is not our business. Where he talks about the struggle of writing, and um, just as this confession, I mean, he says, I, I, "I've wasted largely wasted twenty years trying to use to learn to use words, trying to learn to use words." And you just think, man, Elliot, if you can't use words, then then <laughs> how can I ever? And every right. attempt is a wholly new start and a different kind of failure. And that's, uh, I'm about to start a fourth book, and that's how I feel right now. It's a, it's a wholly new start and a different kind of fail. I'm going to fail in a new way. I read these <laughs> to, my, uh, to my students. I read this section to my students because they feel, you know, very insecure about their own writing and the process of writing. And um, each venture is a new beginning, a raid on the inarticulate with shabby equipment. That's what the writing process is like. So that's yeah. why I like East Coker um, the best. Um, there are just more passages that that resonate with me. Um, yeah, I've been I've been reading a lot of Sayers, so this sounds very Sayers, you know. And then Sayers and Elliot were friends, and yeah, Sayers always said, you know, friends like friends like Elliot, friends like Charles Williams, they had an understanding of language. They knew what words meant and why words were powerful and they knew how to Mm -hmm. use them well. And what Sayers was always finding is that so many people, the inarticulate with shabby equipment, always deteriorating, they didn't understand how to use words. So a lot of the fights or even a lot of the falling for rhetoric of the fascists or any of these things were people not understanding language. Yeah. Right. As one of our tools of being. And I think that that's another thing this poem does is it it re gifts us language. Gosh. Yeah. And get you excited oh. about language, at least. me. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, and also talk about failure. You know, if Elliot has done this, I mean, I don't even know how to footnote what he does here uh, and, and be able to do this even half as well. 
So, so for me, the dry salvages, I usually, um, I have to, I meditate a lot on the fifth movement because it sets up little getting. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. That is probably, that's probably my favorite section. And he goes back to, in the same way where he's talking about Burt Norton, where he's meditating on time, but what we've seen in Elliot is kind of this pattern. So the, the rose garden, the roses, the, um, the fire, the purgatorial, then becomes purgatorial fire. So he's yep. taking these motifs and as the pattern of repeating them happens and he knows consciously that he's doing this, he's repeating them at a new register each time. Yeah. Right. So they get thicker and yeah. thicker and thicker. Yep. So by the time we get to this conversation about time in the fifth movement of dry salvages, it's very thick with what time is. Mm. That's well said. Right. Um, so the part I'm looking at is to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. And that to me, of course, someone who writes on saints, that's mm -hmm. a, such a key line to understand how, what, like what time is for yeah. us or what time should be. Right. And he's contrasted this. This is, a, I love this section too. This is my favorite part of dry salvages in part because it's, it's funny. Right, because he begins with this to communicate with Mars, converse <laughs> with spirits, report the behavior of the sea monster. He's got a sea monster in there, and then when he really gets to, uh, uh, let's see, to um, all these are usual pastimes and drugs and features mm. of the press. So he like right. he gets a dig at the press there. This is what the press. This is this mm -hmm. is a, uh, and he says, and always will be. There's there's something men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension. So we're we're desperate to touch yeah. eternity. We're desperate to yes. transcend time, to see into the future, or to see into the past, and we can't. And he's so he's mm -hmm. got um, psychoanalytical theory in there. Re, re, the mm -hmm. dissect the recurrent image into preconscious terrors. He's got. All these different things, some of it's witchcraft, some of it's the press. Mm -hmm. But he says, then he says, but the but really to apprehend it, the only ones who can really apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time are Christians. This yes. is a something special that's given to us. And it kind of just gives you chills. Like, okay, this is something <laughs> something special. No occupation. Yeah. What do you do with this? No occupation either. So he says it's an occupation for the saint. And then he says no occupation, but something given and taken in a lifetime's death in love, ardor, and selflessness and self-surrender. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's an occupation, but it, it doesn't, it's not something you can pursue. It's not something you mm -hmm. can right, earn towards. It reminds me a lot too of C.S. Lewis, right? In Screwtape Letter, he talks about the, the devil is always wanting to get people to attend to the present, I mean, to the past and the future, mm. but not to recognize the present and to live in the moment the saint lives in, which is the, the Kairos touching the Kronos, which yeah. is what he's getting at here. Um, but to exist in the present, to, to be present in the present, to be fully embodied and attentive. And that's where he goes moment by moment, right? Instead of being distracted, being fully present in the present which I think is just, this is amazing. Um, and then he said, these are only hints and guesses, like the, the what you talked about, all that crazy conversation. These are only hints and guesses, hints followed by guesses, and the rest is prayer, observance, 
Discipline, thought, and action. The hint half guessed, the guest half understood is incarnation. Here, the impossible union of spheres of existence is actual. Okay, so that seems like a big jump. Why is why is he jumping there? And I know he's going to unpack it a little bit as we finish up with little getting, but how does he jump to the incarnation or has he been doing this the whole time and we just didn't catch it? Yeah, I mean, I think for him, we, we didn't talk about it, but in, in, in Burnt Norton, there's this still point in the turning world that uh, for him is, I think, the ground of all existence, the, the thing that all of the universe dances around this one still point and for him i think it's that is it is the incarnation so we've we've been seeing this um uh before uh but but it's not and uh, you know we also saw it i think in east coker with the wounded surgeon but um here he makes it very explicit right Mm -hmm. um and if maybe if you were an elliot reader from his earlier times, you might be frustrated like Virginia Woolf was when he converted, right? Because this, there's, it's unambiguous at this point, right? Mm-hmm. The hint half guessed, the gift half understood is incarnation. Um, yeah. And that's this thing that we're striving towards, searching past and future and clinging that, to that dimension. This is the thing that we're searching for. This mm-hmm. is, you know, that moment, but um, it's something for the saint to appreciate. Um, we participate in it in the Lord's Supper in a way. Um, yeah. But I yeah. love that he emphasizes the rest is prayer, observant, discipline, thought, and action. So he's mm-hmm. he's going to be, he's the whole poem is, is so very abstract and, and beautiful, but it's uh, as he's meditating on, okay, what does it mean to live a righteous life? How do we live rightly? Um, mm-hmm. Part of it is right action, and right action is yep. going to look like spiritual disciplines. Um, so, I, I like that he includes those. Yeah, and for and for him, spiritual obedience, right to the gifts you've received, you know, the mm-hmm. the occupation of the saint, right, the things you've been given. So for him, he's been given this ability to attend right. and to behold, and and the ways that he shares that with us in the poem itself. So again, I just keep talking about the poem itself becomes something else to me. It's like, it's the experience that saves us from distraction. The poem itself re-gifts us language. The poem itself shows us how to attend. The poem itself becomes an exercise or a discipline in that beholding, in that profession of the saint. Um, And I think this is why it's just so, it's such a, I mean, it's a gift. It's not just, here's a genius. In so many ways, this poem even transcends that and it, it has this like revelation, um, this revelation for us. If that's not too much to say no. about the poem, and it's a, it also models humility for us. El- Eliot's, you know, it's tough being. I, I wouldn't know, but it's tough being great at things. And Eliot was, <laughs> Eliot was, he struggled with with humility. Um, you get this in Ash Wednesday. Is uh, mm. as, as well um, this sense that that part of what it means to be a Christian for Eliot is to learn to be humble, uh, despite mm. having this genius, despite being this genius, yeah. and this is this is a poem of humility. Yes, um, and, um, and and you feel, I think, him struggling to have that humility earnestly. So when he's mm. you know we read that passage in East Coker where he's talking about you know the shabby equipment of his language 
And we're, you know, there's something inspiring about that, but there's also something disingenuous about that, right? You like, really, Elliot? Do you really? Yeah. And so, but but I think those lines are in part him trying to um, believe what he knows he ought to believe, which is mm. that, um, which is to be humble, which is to be mm-hmm. to be humble, um, and that's going to become important well, in Little Gidding. I was going to say that's, and that's what you see. Yeah, that's what you see in Little Gidding is him giving credit to the compound ghost, as you said that that legend of all that have come before him. And I think this is different than just standing on the shoulders of giants. That's not where he's placing himself or, or even Dante entering into limbo and being like, I was the sixth poet in this group of great poets, right? He's adding (laughs) to the lineage. It doesn't seem like that's what Iliad Iliad is doing. Instead, he's saying all of these in the same way that Elliot now haunts you, he's admitting all the voices that haunt him Yes. That without all of those voices, that leading figure in his mind, he could not have written this. Right. The section that, that's on humility you. I'm thinking of is not where I thought it is. It's not. I don't think it is oh. in a little getting. Where, where he actually talks about humility? Yes. Where he says humility is endless. I'm not going to sit here. I was going to say, it's going to be, this is too big of a poem for me to find the, (laughs) and and I don't have this, like, as you've mentioned before, encyclopedic knowledge of this. Um, But I will say that there is, there is an embodiment or can you say an embodiment about a ghost, but there's an embodiment of humility by having that compound personage. Yes. So he says, before he gets to the ghost, he, Mm -hmm. uh, he says that um, the only humility we can, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. Uh, that's the phrase I was thinking of. Um, oh, okay, good. Yeah, so I have that memorized, but I don't remember the rest of it. Um, in any case, w- which I find, I think is just a fantastic. That's wisdom. Wisdom is humility. Wisdom is 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 kneeling before God in in humility. So let's talk about this compound ghost. Um, what's so fascinating about this ghost to you? Well, you know, and I've read tradition and the individual talent. And so, you know, Elliot was always frustrated with people who said, why should we look at the past? You know, we're so much beyond them. We're so much smarter than them. And he says, they are what we know. Like they are the reason we think we're so much smarter is because we've inherited them. And I think in our current time period, especially as people are, you know, putting books out all the time. I mean, these like crazy prolific authors, like if you don't realize that your wealth is this inherited gift and you're not always pointing back to them, then a lot of what you're saying is this kind of meaningless, shabby equipment of language. This, <laughs> you're adding to the distraction. Yeah. And so Elliot, to me, this by by locating this ghost and having this conversation is reminding us where where the real source of, of treasure comes from, which is the past. It's a funny conversation he has with the ghost too. I think it's, I think it's a little funny because he, um, he says, uh, uh, um, the ghost says to him, since our concern was speech and speech impelled us to purify the dialect of the tribe and urge the mind to aftersight and foresight, let me disclose the gift reserved for age to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. 
So if you imagine there's this ghost that comes to you representing all the great teachers that you've had. And, and he says, I'm going to give you this. You're, you're an older man now, Elliot. I'm going to give you this crown, the crown that you've earned. Here's what age has earned for you. First, the cold friction of expiring sense without enchantment. <laughs> so as you age, your senses, your eyesight, all these things start to fail without any enchantment, offering no promise but bitter tastelessness of shadow fruit as body and soul begin to fall asunder. As you slowly die, your body and soul begin to fall asunder. That's one of the <laughs> gifts for age. Second, uh-huh. the conscious impotence of rage at human folly. So I imagine this old man sitting on a porch shaking his fist at the, at the world. Human folly just pisses you off. It's not funny anymore. It just makes you mad. And it's an impotent rage. You can't, it doesn't mm-hmm. do anything. The laceration of laughter at what ceases to amuse. When you were younger, you thought it was funny to laugh at human misery, maybe. But now it's not so funny anymore. Last, the rending pain of reenactment. This is my favorite one. Of all that you have done and been. All the things you've done and been, you're reenacted in your mind. The shame of motives late revealed. And the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue, then fool's approval stings and honor stains. That's what we have. So we look back on our lives and all the things that we thought were these virtuous acts, but they were actually yeah. harmful to others. And, and, and then the approval of fools stings. And you've got to be thinking about critics who praised Eliot, right? And he's thinking back to his old work and he's just like, the the approval of fools doesn't give me that honor now. It, it, it stains. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't leave us there, right? So right. from wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds unless restored by that refining fire, back to fire, where you must mm-hmm. move and measure like a dancer and back to dancing. Yeah, so good. So good. Do you, you know, the end of uh, Revelation and Flannery O'Connor, she has a character who they're entering the fire where even their virtues are being burned away. Mm. And that, so that to me is what seems like it's happening here is like the last things that Elliot could have been holding on to, to justify who he was or how good he was at this, like that still belongs in the refining fire. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Even the things that he, like you said, where he's struggling with humility, even the things that he thinks are his own or his own abilities still has to be given up into yep. that process. Yeah. So good. Yeah. I, lo- I love those. I've circled them as like the, these three things um, that he gives you in that moment, which I just think is, is fantastic. I, the preaching. <laughs> I've always wanted to make like a, uh, a birthday card for older people out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Here are these three <laughs> gifts that we've given you. <laughs> but, but, but it's kind of a niche audience but yeah well yeah. and it's hard to understand when you're young you know i think about teaching this poem to students that's just not something that no. they understand um yeah those three things right yeah i think it's hard often, to get apart from age often when i'm teaching this i'm excited up there right <laughs> standing in front of them and i'm like guys you just just remember this. Just remember. You'll be there. Don't worry. Um, yep. It is a middle-aged poem. I feel like it's a middle-aged I, yeah. poem. 
that's the thing. I was like, wait, when did we get to be middle-aged? But no, you're right. Like I get Elliot now in a way that I don't think I got him even in grad school. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You could do, get the yeah. incarnation parts, right? You know, right, that, right. that stuff, that stuff's easy, but it's not, but that bit, the objects of, you know, the, the focus on humility, that that's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even the ending, you know, I've, I've quoted the ending before graduation speeches because I do think it's an important reminder, but every time I hear it at a different age, it means something new, yeah. right? His final verses there. So yeah, as we, as we wrap up, do you mind just finishing yeah. with this kind of final vision and, and we'll close with it? Should I just read the last stanza? What do you think? Probably I think so. Um, I love the introduction of it, though, with the drawing of this love, that part. Oh. And then it just got the last one. Okay, I see. I th- Interesting. Oh, okay, yeah. With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, un- through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. So good. Yeah. So I, I love reading that first part. You know, the we shall not cease from our exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time to my students when uh, when we begin a semester. Um, because uh, particularly when I teach our Western Civ sequence, um, because we're going back to the Greeks and to the Romans. And right. what I want them to understand is like, we're going to go back exploring, but we're going to do that in part to see where we are today, because you don't know where you are right now. Yeah. You think you do, but you don't. And so that's part of what exploration is about. Um, and see it for the first time, to know the place for the first time. So good. Is that how you use it in the graduation? Graduation. Um, partially. I mean, the ways that so when I quoted it at graduation, um, the way that I was looking at it as you think that you're here, and then ten years from now you'll be looking back at this moment, and you'll re-see this moment. Mm, yeah. And you'll know this moment differently than you know this moment right now, and. And it's constant. I think that's the constant just life of a person is that you're always thinking in this moment, you know, certain things, you are a certain way, and then you're going to look back on that moment and it's going to be different than it was. And, and I think that that's just what we have. That's what Elliot is asking us to do is to constantly re-examine the things that we think Absolutely. we know, re-examine the, the knowledge we think we have. And he so. does that, you know, you've been talking about how the poem does these things that it's asking, that mm-hmm. it's talking about, right? And right. it does that, right? This this last stanza calls back to the children in the apple tree that we heard whispering in Burt Norton. Right. Um, and so you're being 
pulled back and you're really being asked to not cease from exploring the poem, but, but mm-hmm. to go back to yes. the beginning and to appreciate it. Okay. Uh, and you'll see it, you'll, you'll see it for the first time once you read it again, and which is absolutely true. Um, I love this line, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything, which I think is a great description of the Christian faith. Uh, On the one hand, the simplicity of the gospel, simplicity of God. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, it costs not less than everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real costly grace as opposed to, you know, the cheap grace that people talk about. And this poem, those reexaminations that you're talking about and returning back to the poem itself again, all of that continues until the beatific vision, until all shall be well, until the fire and the rose are one, right? Until all the tongues of flame are enfolded. I mean, everything about this poem is directing your eyes beyond the poem, beyond your life, beyond this world to the ultimate beatific vision, to the ultimate end of things. Yeah. Right. Well, that was a lot. This is actually the longest <laughs> scandal of reading episode that I have recorded, but Great. I didn't want to shortchange the poem because it's just one of my favorite things to walk through. Yeah. So thank you for investing so much time. I really appreciate it. And I hope You're more welcome. people read the poem and they can find your work, of course, online. The Twittering world you live in. <laughs> yes. and, and, find, and find your books and, and find out more about you. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.